Hello and welcome to episode 143 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week, Karen Meyer talks with Alex Miller about programming and dependency management and how to do more of one and less of the other. But before we jump into the conversation, I do have a couple of announcements. The first is that it's closure tree time again. Closure Tree is a single-track closure conference that welcomes both newbies and experienced closurists and features short talks, a late start, and a funky after-party. says so right there on their website. Closure Tree is happening on September 13th and 14th in Helsinki, Finland. Go on over to closuretree.org slash 2018. That is C-L-O-J-U-T-R-E dot org slash 2018 for all the details. It's also getting on the Closure Conj time. Closure Conj 2018 is happening on November 29th through December 1st, I guess that's not really all that close, in Durham, North Carolina. But registration is open now and the call for speakers should be open by the time this podcast hits the streets. So go on over to 2018.closure-conj.org for all the details. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Karen and Alex in episode 143 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone. Today is May 25th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Alex Miller to the show. Thank you for being with us, Alex. Sure. So, um, as you know, we usually start out the show. Um, oh, I guess I should say a little bit about like who you are. If, if somebody doesn't, I just assume that everybody knows who you are because you're. You're so prominent in the community and you work here at Cognitect. But Alex um, does work here at Cognitect and, and I'll, I'll just let you pass it over to you to give you a, a brief description of what you do. Oh, sure. Um, I, in short, I uh, work on maintaining closure. So I think that would be the, the shortest way to say it, but I also do a fair amount of uh, work uh, talking to the community, both uh, sort of explaining what we're doing and listening to what other people are doing and asking for and uh, I do occasionally do a little consulting for Cognitect and a little teaching and work on conferences and uh, do my own conference stuff on the side. And uh, so I have my fingers in many pies, but uh, uh, in short, working on closure stuff. <laughs> you do indeed. But um, yeah, so I was gonna get to the, uh, the traditional first question. Um, so we went a little off uh, course uh, in one of my other uh, recordings with Nygaard, but I'm going to get back on track. <laughs> so we're going to go back to the art experience. 
So this is an art experience that you'd like to share that is art in any way that it relates to you, whether it's visual, audio, just, you know, anything. Yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't have any like a searing recent experience that I wanted to talk about. So I wanted to, to talk about a band that I've gotten really into in the last year or so, which is this band called Wolfpack with a V. Um, and uh, I, they're a little difficult to describe, but they do uh, instrumental and sort of uh, funky, jazzy type music. And they have, they have I, I just... I both really enjoy the band. They're they're phenomenal players, and they're really good at like, uh, you know, they they really uh, groove, and they also have this just very modern uh, approach to the music industry. I don't know how else to say that, but they are like very sort of visible in different ways on social media, and they kind of do all of their release all their own recordings. They made it their own font they have released compression software plugins wait wait, and... wait. Can, can you go back like a couple because i was i was all, i was with you you know with the releasing music but they, they had a font what yeah they they made their own font to use on their albums so they kind of have their just dabble in all this stuff that's sort of the the things around the band you know they're also just interested in a variety of art and technical kind of things and then they have this sort of penumbra of other bands that are different combinations of people that are in the in Wolfpack there's there's a, a set of some of them plus some additional people that just released an album as the Fearless Flyers that's uh, all mostly instrumental there's a guy named Theo Katzman. He releases. He's one of. The, he's in the band, but he also releases his own stuff. And they sit in as musicians on like other singers' bands. And so they have a sort of like just this cast of characters that has different permutations that release music kind of on their own terms. And I'm a little fascinated about that just from a, like a business perspective uh, as well, while also simultaneously really enjoying the music. So yeah. So do they do they tour or is it all just like online? Uh, they tour, um, so they they yeah they just uh, recently did a show at Red Rocks, which was uh, a big show for them. So they're like you know most people are totally unaware of this band, but they're able to like do a big show at Red Rocks. So clearly enough, people know about them, and um, they actually had a little one of their songs was actually featured on a recent Apple commercial. So they're clearly breaking at some level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty underground. So. Well, if they're, if they're on Apple, I mean, they've... <laughs> so I tried pretty hard to get them to come out for Strangeland this year, but uh, they have definitely surpassed the level where they're willing to do that, <laughs> oh, <laughs> or at least at a price that I was willing to pay. So <laughs> Wow, that'd be awesome. So are they American or are they some other? Yeah. Okay. I think they're centered around maybe Ann Arbor, Michigan or... Minnesota or someplace up there. Okay. Well, Went to the same music school or something like that. I don't remember the details. I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to check them out now. They sound really cool, and they're and they're compression software too. Do they have a GitHub account? I don't know. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But um, a lot of their videos, they actually a lot of their songs that they record, they actually sort of work out this jam just in rehearsals, and then they'll actually record like a take. And so a lot of their things they record are actually just single takes recorded live. 
and a lot of their they have all these very sort of homemade videos that are th them recording those takes and things like that so they're kind of fun videos too Cool. Now, I, I can't remember. A lot of people working at Cognitech, they seem like they have um, some sort of musical background. A lot of them play instruments. And I can't remember. Do you play an instrument as well? I play several. Um, so my my sort of most proficient instrument is actually viola. Um, I've played viola most of my life and, and uh, am still playing in orchestras off and on basically dependent on time. So <laughs> I kind of start at the beginning of the school year and try to scope out whether or not I have time to actually play. There's a couple of local orchestras that I play in off and on. They're like community orchestras. Uh, but then I also play piano and guitar. Wow. I, I just never knew this. <laughs> That's really cool. So... I don't play any of them very well these days, but I do dabble in them, so well, I, I, <laughs> my, my kids are all into music, so I kind of play with them a little bit too. My yeah. one of my sons plays drums, and it's pretty good. The other one is uh, plays clarinet and bass, and my daughter um, has played a bunch of different things, but probably plays cello and a little bit of keyboards and ukulele. So we have many instruments scattered about the house. Yeah, I, I just think it's cool that you you keep up with it. Like you're 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 doing it. Um, you know, I really, I if I don't play in any sort of musical way for a year or two, I start to really miss it. So uh, I found that's been it's good. It's a good. It's a different way of thinking. <laughs> so I enjoy. Uh, you know, I need to go exercise that part of my brain on a regular basis. I find. So I have this image of you like noodling like a hard problem and kind of doing a Sherlock Holmes thing and like whipping <laughs> out the vi viola and, and, and doing that. Have you ever done that? Uh, I don't know if I've done it intentionally for that reason or anything. But <laughs> I do have a guitar in my office and occasionally I will, I will uh, take a break for something and go play guitar for a few minutes. Nice. Yeah. So, so this brings me to the question of like... I just, I've gotten to the point where I really can't think of closure without you. <laughs> so, so how did you find closure in the beginning or did the closure find you? Uh, some of both. So <laughs> I, 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 uh, I've came to closure at a point where I was ready to receive it. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, have a lot of background and, um, sort of at the point where I found closure, I was, uh, had a long experience in Java. Uh, I had done a lot of concurrency work. Uh, I had done a lot of uh, low-level JVM stuff, like messing with bytecode and uh, things like that. Um, I had done some scheme stuff, both in school and also um, had done a little dabbling with it sort of off and on since then. So I had all the, I was prepped for it. Um, and then uh, I started a, a, a user group here in St. Louis called the Lambda Lounge back in 2008, and where we were looking, we're sort of, um, I, I knew all these language communities that were, all these people and small groups that were sort of getting together to talk about non sort of languages that were a little under the radar, and so I put together this group to sort of uh, bring all those groups together uh, and I've tried to broaden it out to functional and dynamic languages and 
which was sufficiently vague enough to include many different topics of interest. <laughs> so I combined a bunch of different communities and, and uh, um, managed to get a pretty stable roster of about 50 people that would get together every month uh, and, and talk about stuff. And so it was kind of in the air. Uh, and I was experimenting with different things and then sort of came on to closure and through a variety of, uh, things, I was starting a new job near the end of 2009, early 2010, and, um, was given the opportunity to sort of architect a new product and be able to pick the language that we were working in. And it needed to be on the JVM. I needed to do some, uh, I needed some powers of abstraction for various things we were working on, query engine type stuff. Uh, I knew I didn't want to write it in Java, and we sort of trialed both Clojure and Scala. We were actually uh, we were just kind of hiring people at the same time um, and telling them that we weren't sure which language we were going to use yet, which I think would be more difficult to do today, but it, was, it wasn't that bad at the time. And uh, we sort of had an initial sort of small project and we, we built it in both closure and Scala sort of in parallel. And I, I fully assumed that, um, we would pick Scala. Um, and so that was my assumption going into it. And then after about a month and a half, I looked around and I was like, Hey, are you guys still working on the Scala version? And they're like, uh, no, we're all, all just working on the closure version. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I guess we made our choice about what we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, we all decided that we we liked the closure version better, and so um, we just kind of dove into it at that point and never looked back. And then um, after a few years, um, that was sort of uh, 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 I forcibly wound down <laughs> uh, due to uh, we were mostly funded by a government contract that got killed in the uh, sequester. If you remember the sequestration back in 2013 or so. Mm. Um, something like that. Um, the the main project that was supporting the company got uh, got its budget zeroed. So, <laughs> um, and I had kind of already been poking around and was in in touch with people at Cognitect and said, "Hey, I've got this weird background that has to do with closure and open source and concurrency and JVM and and, and like I think I could like I, I think." I think I could work on, I think there is a need there for the thing that I happen to know how to do. Plus also I had all this conference background and they were doing conference, you know, there was this thing where like there was this very, what I sensed as a uniquely shaped hole that I happened to exactly fill. <laughs> so, so uh, fortunately that it took a little bit of time, but eventually that kind of worked out as a good, as a good thing. So. Yeah. To everyone. Um, yeah. So at some point, I know that uh, a book was written, <laughs> and this was um, programming closure. Um, yeah. Uh, so, are you talking about the new edition or the original? Well, edition? the the original edition, <laughs> the original edition of programming closure. So, but there is a new edition that just came out. So, I don't, I can't remember when the original edition of programming closure came out because it was quite a while ago. So it came out right around when I started learning Clojure, and that was what I learned Clojure from, uh, was Stu Holloway's first edition of Programming Clojure, which was the first Clojure book that was out. Um, and so, and then uh, it was updated a few years later by Aaron Bedra, uh, and then uh, they came to me 
uh, a couple of years ago and asked me, the Pragmatic Press came to me and asked me if I wanted to uh, do a third edition of it. And so, and I was honored to be asked to do that. And uh, uh, so I agreed to do that. And that came out in uh, February this year. So, uh, and it's mostly the same. Um, I mean, it went through the entire book and updated everything from like a version perspective uh, and just tried to make it as approachable as possible. Um, and then, uh, we added a new, I added a new chapter on spec and a new example chapter and a new section on transducers. We kind of added a little bit of more newer material. I think the last update had been done on closure one, three. So, um, wow. there, so it had been a while, but it's surprising how, how much of the book was still completely relevant. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you you couldn't say that for like a a node book, like going back to <laughs> one uh, that uh, six major versions is like what probably a couple months in node land, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I think that's a testament to the language stability right there. Yep, and and I would definitely uh, also in talking about uh, intro closure books, we are spoiled with good choices in the closure community, and you have one in living closure and. Um, Russ Olson just released Getting Closure, also in Pragmatic, which is a fantastic book as well. And there's Closure for the Brave and True by Daniel Higginbotham. And um, so there's lots of great closure books. So there's no excuse for not learning closure, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But that, that's not the only book you've been involved with, right? <laughs> yeah. So interestingly, I wrote the, the sort of uh, one targeted a little later experience level first. Um, so uh, in 2015, Ben Van Grift and I, Ben, who was at Cognitech at the time, um, we wrote uh, Closure Applied together. Uh, and our goal with that was really to, to write a, a, like a second closure book. Like, I've already read an intro book. I know all the syntax, they all that, but how do I actually like use it to build stuff? And so it covers like you know, domain modeling and cho choosing which collection to use and an overview of all the different concurrency solutions in Clojure and how to compose applications out of components and organize namespaces and do testing and all that kind of stuff. It, it's an excellent book. I have it. It's a well, thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, some of it has definitely, um, I, so it, the danger with it is that it is, you know, in points a little opinionated um, where it's trying to say, this is a good way to do stuff. And in a few of those cases, some of that stuff has, um, uh, been superseded by things like spec have, I think have probably, I would definitely not write the domain, the first chapter the same way now it would be. So maybe it's due for an update at some point. Yeah. So, so let's talk a minute about, about spec. So how has, has spec kind of changed the way that you approach things? Um, so spec, um, is interesting in that, um, I've gotten a lot of value out of it in sort of, uh, well, in a couple different ways. So one is I have found it to be greatly helpful in clarifying data structures. So um, there are a lot of places where like um, the really good thing about Clojure is that you can build all of your data out of this very small set of core composable data structures, right? Um, but the downside is that then all your all your data is built out of these small number of pieces, you know? <laughs> These just just maps and vectors mostly, right? And then primitive values. 
And so you've got just different assemblies of those kinds of things. And so you see a lot of closure code that uh, that makes it very general. And so you can use all these general functional tools on it, but also uh, remove some of the signposts that you have in a statically typed language um, where you've got you know, types that are telling you about the shape of the data. And so I found spec to be really helpful in being able to clarify um, what I expect the shape of the data to be um, in a very specific way. And often, because it's based on predicates, um, I can often be much more specific than I could type. So instead of saying something is an int, I can say that it's a, you know, um, that it's uh, an age or something like that, and that an age is something that goes from zero to whatever. Um, so you can you can come up with something that's a, that's more me semantically meaningful in your domain to say about the uh, domain of values that are okay. Um, so I found that helpful both in clarifying what's happening in my code to myself and also as a communication mechanism. So there used to be a thousand different ways I would try to communicate to another programmer what the shape of this data was, and now I can very succinctly list a spec for that data. Uh, and then once I have that, not only can I communicate it via the spec, I can actually use the spec to generate examples. Um, and so I found that to be uh, pretty useful. And then the second way that I, uh, I've got a lot of value out of it is through the instrumentation part. Um, once you spec functions um, in the REPL, if I've instrumented you know, parts of my code, I can get immediate feedback when I invoke a function with some value that is that doesn't conform to the spec, and that means that I generally get um, better feedback faster about um, when I've done something other than what I intended to do. Uh, and then I think the the sort of the next area that is still we still have a few more things that we intend to do before we've really you know given out all the story on this is uh, in testing. And, and so we've, we've built all this stuff for, um, you know, sample generation and um, property to automatic property testing with functions. But I think there's uh, a lot of stuff that can be enhanced in that area. And then uh, it also has sort of set up an environment where you could do a lot of interesting things about, um, recording the results of different property-based tests uh, and avoiding and and being uh, tactical about which tests you need to rerun when you change certain kinds of code. So, uh, and Rich has talked about this a little bit publicly and um, I've actually spent a significant portion of time building some stuff that hasn't been released yet, but um, the idea is that um, if you have defined specs for some functions, and other things use those functions, I don't need to rerun the tests for the things that haven't changed. I only need to rerun tests for things that have changed, and I can use specs to, to clarify boundaries in my code. And so if you actually analyze your code and understand the functional tree of what's calling what, then you, can, um, then you know that if my code changed in a specific place, I can detect exactly which tests need to be rerun and then remember that. And so, um, Rich and I have been working on a system that does some of that stuff. Wow. I can't wait to hear Still more to about it. <laughs> I'm thinking about like a React tree, you know, sort of thing. You don't need to re-render. You don't need to re retest, right? Right. 
and and that's true like because right now what we do is we rerun our entire suite of tests every time we you know like in some cases every time if you're running like a background test runner every time you type characters into our editor right we're like this background process is like rerunning thousands of tests that and stuff that didn't change and so that's dumb <laughs> so we would like to stop doing that yeah yeah that definitely would be value add um, yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion, too, on spec, because I know um, it's still relatively new. Um, so people are are trying to figure out the best way to work with it, and for them personally, because sometimes, you know, things that work for one person don't work for another person. But uh, generally, do you, do you start making the specs um, first as you start doing the code, or is it more of something like you want the code to settle down first and then you go back to this another pass and spec it? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you approach that? It, it depends on the code a lot, but um, it is something that I try to do sort of um, off and on. And you do kind of go in cycles with it, you know, where uh, a lot of times at the beginning, um, some people are really good at figuring out the design ahead of time, uh, like Rich, and can just code it all up in their mind and execute it. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I tend to have a hard time with that stuff and I do a lot of thinking through writing code and throwing it away. Um, and so during that phase, I don't often, uh, uh, I don't often bother specking all the intermediates of that stuff. But once I start to get a feeling for what the shape of the data is and that sort of stuff, I find it's very helpful to spec the data at that point and then, um, also, once you start to get sort of stable API type layers, it's good to uh, it's good to start building that and and reifying it a little bit. Um, and I think one of the big benefits of of spec is that you can choose when you do that and whether you do it. It's all ad hoc, and you can even choose to like under spec something. So you might say, you know, you might you might just spec the input to something as any, and so you say I don't. I haven't decided what that shape of that thing's going to be at. I'll just spec it as a map, but I'm not going to tell you what the keys of it are or any of that stuff. You know, um, so sometimes I do that where I'll I'll write a spec, but it's very vague at the beginning, and then I'll kind of will make it more concrete as I understand more what it's what's going to be in it. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I find. Um, I mean, I, I appreciate very much that spec is very flexible. But then different people can find different ways of, of working with it. And mm -hmm. uh, then we can, as practitioners, we can share that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think that's, uh, that's very valuable. Um, I did want to ask you, because this is something I've been wondering about um, for, for a while, um, the story behind Strange Loop. Um, so Strange Loop, just to give people background if you haven't heard about it, it is a fabulous conference in St. Louis. Is it always is it always in September? Uh, yeah, pretty okay. much. I mean, it's been in either September, or October. Yeah, but um, it, it's it's grown now and is incredibly successful, and uh, it just brings together just all sorts of bright minds from all areas of programming, and sometimes not even programming too. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through the story of how that how the heck did you do that <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know it's, it's, the, it's the it's the top answer i think for the question <laughs> um this is this year will actually be the 10th strange loop and 
I don't, I'm not sure exactly how I got to this point with it. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I feel very lucky that everything has just worked out well with it. There's been the, the looking back, I can see all of the places where things could have gone horribly wrong. So I'm glad that uh, I managed to accidentally avoid most of those. Um, but uh, I mentioned before the Lambda Lounge, which was this group that I put together, kind of bringing people together in St. Louis and and that happened about a year before Strange Loop, uh, and so I was kind of thinking about it already, and that was um, that was kind of a, a useful testing ground for a lot of ideas. Like, is anybody interested in this kind of stuff? Like, are there enough people that you could actually do something? And um, and uh, and then I had uh, an uncle who was very uh, inspirational to me, and he passed away uh, early in 2010, and so I went out to his service out in Portland and and it was just this like unending stream of people that I you know I didn't I visit him occasionally but I you know I wasn't like up on his social circle or anything but just person after person came up and said you know that my uncle had uh, you know started this group and he had you know or gotten them to come join a group uh, and <laughs> there are many stories where he had gotten people where he he had come up with an idea and then gotten somebody else to run it <laughs> so uh, he was very good at that somehow, but um, he, he had really just created communities in all these different places, people that went bird watching and people around woodworking and cooking and just all these different things that he was interested in. Uh, and so I found that really inspiring. I was just like, well, I'll just give it a shot. You know, what's the worst could happen? So I like loaned myself 500 bucks and, and, uh, and uh, just nickel and dimed it the first, you know, for a long time, um, and uh, just kind of figured it out. I, I made, uh, you know, a lot of mistakes the first year, I would say, um, but uh, uh, I had planned for about 150 people the first year, and we had 300, <laughs> and then, and then, and then I remember clearly right after I collapsed after the first conference. And I remember like all like just being struck with the realization that people were going to want to go to this again, <laughs> which I had not even ever thought about. I was so, so busy trying not to die that I had not thought about the fact that there would be a second one, you know? Um, and so um, the second one, we actually had 600 people. So it doubled in size and I was doing uh, all of the work at that point. And, uh, and I, I got to the end of the second one and I, I, I was, I just barely made it to the end of the second one. That was a, that was a bad year in a lot of ways. I didn't sleep a lot that year. Um, and, uh, uh, so once we got through the, once I got through the second year, I was like, I, I think this could be really cool and I want to keep doing it, but I can't do it by myself. It's just impossible to do this. And so I recruited a bunch of people, many of whom are still involved with it today. Um, and so we had so uh, Nick Cowan and uh, Ryan Senior and Mario Aquino, um, all those guys came on around that time. And then uh, a couple of years later, Bridget Hillier joined. And then last year, or two years ago, I guess at this point, um, Crystal uh, Martin joined. And so we built up a great sort of organizational team and and uh, found. Moved to moved to successively larger venues, and um, last year we had uh, twenty two hundred people, and it's it's really grown, and it's been it's been very 
uh, gratifying to be to be part of that. So I'm very thankful that people continue to like it. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it is a wonderful conference, uh, and and not only is the the, the content and the speakers uh, fabulous, also some of the side uh, venues or events that you set up. Uh, in particular, uh, there's a one museum. Mm-hmm. What what the is that city called? Museum. Yeah, it's called the City Museum. Up? So it is a it is a truly unique place in the world. Um, uh, there is nothing else like it that I'm aware of anywhere. <laughs> Um, and so it's called the City Museum, which is kind of a weird name for it because it doesn't really, it, it doesn't mostly doesn't have anything to do with, with like you think it's going to be something about St. Louis or whatever, and and it is, but not in an obvious way. Um, so uh, it's kind of the brainchild of this guy named Bob Casilli uh, and his wife Gail, um, who bought this warehouse and just started like building stuff in it, and so it's full of. Uh, much of the stuff that's in the museum is actually reclaimed from local businesses. And so if you, like when you walk in, there's a wall full of like uh, sort of these rectangular metal things and they are actually um, like bedpans from a hospital that went out of business or something like that. Um, Or there's like gears all over and they came from a factory or warehouse or something like that. Um, so there's our spindles or spindles that came out of, you know, the spindles for the staircases are actually like the rolling pins on like, um, conveyor belts, um, that came out of a local, uh, warehouse or something like that. So there's all this stuff that's in the museum that's reclaimed from, from the city. Uh, so in that way it is sort of of the city. Uh, and there's a, this team of people who are just continuously building the museum. Like there's now a fourth floor to it and they keep building out the outside and it's there's tons of like these rebar tunnels and 10 story slides and uh weird stuff it's very difficult it's i've decided it's impossible to describe because it's really a fractal it's like one of those things where you can stand way back and just look at it and you're like there's a ferris wheel on the roof and a bus hanging off the roof and a big praying mantis and there's planes hanging in the air and you know it's just like it's like amazing at that level and you can also just walk up to any wall and look at like one like three inch square area and there'll be something interesting there. Um, so that's why it's difficult to explain. But it's a it's an amazing place. And and uh, I'm a lot of people uh, describe that as sort of the highlight of going to the conference. So uh, I'm very fortunate we're able to keep keep going there. And I, I did do a poll a couple of years ago. I was like, are people tired of going to this place? You know, <laughs> like people come back every year. Are they tired of going there? And I did a poll and people were like, no, we want to keep going there. So that was the overwhelming response was that people uh, were very happy with going there over and over again. So it's like, all right. We'll yeah. And there's a, there's a slide, right? That goes from the top floor, like all the way down to the bottom. There are many slides. There's a 10 story slide, which actually it's not as, that one is not actually as uh great as it sounds because it's kind of like a circular thing uh it used to be a shoe factory and warehouse and so they the shoes went down that sort of circular slide i had no idea that shoes went down that okay (laughs) and uh yeah so there's weird stuff like that very cool so uh this year is strange loop uh what 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 are we going to expect do you have the keynote sorted for that we do so those are actually on the site already 
Um, so the four keynotes that we'll have this year are Simon Peyton Jones, who's been involved with Haskell and lots of other language-related stuff. But he's actually going to be talking about uh, sort of a project he has gotten uh, very passionate and involved in, which is sort of building a K through 12 programming curriculum for the UK, or maybe it's for Europe. I don't remember exactly the scope of it. Um, but that's something he has been very involved with for the last few years, and uh, he's going to talk about that. Um, and then uh, Erica Joy Baker is coming, and she has been at a bunch of different organizations. She's currently at Patreon, um, and she has done a lot of speaking about diversity in tech, but uh, also has done a lot of software management. And uh, I don't, uh, I haven't heard yet exactly what she's going to talk about, so um, I'm waiting to see. Uh, and then Amal Ahmed from Northeastern uh, is going to come talk, and she's super smart and uh, works on a lot of really interesting stuff around programming languages and different stuff. And so she's, uh, I don't have a, a concrete thing yet for her, but um, uh, we've talked about a few different ideas, and I, I haven't got the final bit. Uh, it will be awesome. Uh, and then uh, Janelle Shane is going to come and talk about uh, some of her her interesting uh, projects that she's put together. She does a lot of machine learning type projects uh, that are uh, basically taking a bunch of data and then having machine learning come up with uh, new examples of that. And a lot of them are things that are uh, hilariously bad. So she does things like train a, you know, a, a network on uh, recipes and then have the, the, have the algorithm, you know, produce new recipes, which are, um, which are often bad. <laughs> so <laughs> she, she famously, uh, uh, made one of them once, which was horseradish brownies. And she mm. said those were as bad as you can imagine. <laughs> well, that sounds she awesome. It's like colors. And, uh, recently she just trained it a network on the combination of ice cream names and metal bands and came up with an interesting list. So nice. things like that. It'll be a fun, we'll probably do that one as the closing keynote. So it'll be kind of a fun way to go out. That, that'll be awesome. Yeah. So so for the listeners, if they want to get a ticket to Strange Loop, what is their best strategy? Because I know they go really fast. So that's changed a little bit because we've expanded. So last year we actually had tickets available right all the way up to the conference. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so uh, we now we're, we're doing breakout sessions in, in both the Peabody Opera House, which is our, our main venue, but then also in Union Station. And so there's like a set of shuttle buses that continuously run between the two venues. So you can, it's, and we've kind of moved the timing around a little bit. So um, you can sort of see things in either venue and it's pretty easy to do that. And I didn't, we actually had no problems with that last year at all. Um, and uh, that allowed us to expand basically. And so we added a lot of tickets last year and, um, and we, Targeted uh, targeted about 2,100 last year, and I think we ended up right around that number. But we had tickets. I'd never actually closed registration last year, um, and I'm expecting that it'll be similar this year. So uh, tickets should go on sale. Uh, right now I'm kind of targeting June 12th. Um, that might move back if... if uh, any difficulties come up but <laughs> that's the target rate target date right now um the big the big thing the, the big news this year is that um icfp the international conference on functional programming has 
decided to co-locate with us this year. Um, they generally switch back and forth between uh, a U.S. location and a location in either Europe or Asia. I think they were maybe in Tokyo last year. Can't remember. Um, but so for we've actually for the last three years we've actually been working on this to have them come co-locate, um, and that's actually a full week conference. And Strange Loop is kind of nestled in the middle of that. And so if you really, really want to melt your brain, you can come for a full seven days of uh, ICFP and their sort of uh, satellite workshops and Strange Loop and all that. So they have like workshops uh, beside the main, uh, the sort of timing wise, the way it works out is that ICFP will have sort of a, some smaller workshops on Sunday. The main part of the ICFP conference is going to be Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, or no, sorry, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, and then they'll have um, some of their larger workshops on Thursday and Friday. So things like they have a Scala workshop and a Haskell workshop and Erlang workshop and some other things like that. And then some there's some additional workshops on Saturday. The, probably the one of most interest to strangely attendees for that one is farm, which is the functional arts and music. I'm probably butchering that, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really uh, it's mostly sort of more creative um, stuff around art and music uh, intersecting with functional programming. Um, and and then strangely this year will actually be Wednesday through Friday, so our pre-conference will overlap with the final day of ICFP and that will all be taking place in the same building and we'll kind of share a lunch. So, uh, and then the main strange loop will take place at Peabody and Union Station and then the ICFP workshops on Thursday and Friday will also be at Union Station. So if you want to buy a ticket to some or all of ICFP, you can do that as well. Uh, and that'll be broken up by day. So you can like say, I want to buy tickets for Friday, which I think is when uh, the Scala workshop happens to be, and then I can go. Uh, you you could go see all of the Scala workshops, the Scheme workshops, the Haskell workshops, and all of the tracks for Strange Loop. So you can uh, uh, have uh, complete fear of missing out all day long, every day. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're excited about that. It is uh, it, there are a lot of logistics involved. I can <laughs> so. imagine, but yeah, that's it's going to be a great conference. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a uh, it'll be a really fun week, I think. So yeah. Okay, yeah, I wanted to talk about um, the product team uh, work that you do because I know you have your fingers in a lot of pies at Cognitech. I mean, you do consulting, you do community work. But you also do, um, you're one of the, the main people involved with the, the product side, well, what, what I consider the product side with um, Datomic and also Clojure. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you're involved with that. Sure. I don't actually work on Datomic at all. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm outside of that part, but um, mostly focus on the Clojure side. And um, so I work on uh, sort of, making new closure things, um, both in the uh, language itself, uh, along with uh, Rich and Stu, Stu Holloway. Um, and then I also work on a bunch of different libraries that are part of the closure contrib and sort of running the ecosystem. So I manage the build server and the 
um, mailing lists and uh, all the website, all that stuff. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I am perpetually behind on all of that stuff <laughs> just because I'm juggling a hundred different things. But um, uh, one of the big things I've been working on for the last uh, year or so is is the new CLJ tool. Um, so that's kind of probably where most of my uh, energy in that area has gone in the last year. Okay. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. Uh, it was released along with Closure 1.9 in December. Um, and it is basically a tool for downloading dependencies, uh, building class paths, and launching Closure programs. So it, it overlaps in that way with existing Closure build tools like Linigan or Boot or Maven. Um, it is both more and less than those things. Uh, it's more in that it has a different notion of uh, a different implementation of um, retrieving uh, transitive dependencies. Uh, and that means that we can actually sort of expand the notion of what a dependency is and where we get it. Uh, and it also is less in that a lot of the build tools uh, tools like Linigan or Boot have, um, you know, to try to provide ready-made tasks that allow you to do things like, you know, make jars and launch REPLs and uh, build Uber jars and deploy things and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas CLJ tries to sort of draw the line a little short of doing all those specific tasks and say, uh, we will uh, we we will help you build a class path to run a tool, and um, all of those things are programs. And so, uh, if you want to you know make a jar, um, that's a program, and if and we can help you run that program. Um, and I think that some of that stuff will evolve over time. But people have been uh, building things like test runners and uh, jar uh, you know jar builders and all sorts of things like that. Um, so, so what, what's the, to somebody who hasn't, you know, tried, tried this yet, like what's the best way to, to download it and try it? So there are instructions on the getting started page on the closure website. Um, if you're on Mac, you can use brew to get it. And, and I'd say based on what I see at conferences, probably most closure users use Mac. Um, that's maybe a bold assertion. I don't really have any data for that other than looking around at conferences. Um, but uh, so you can just say uh, brew install closure, um, and that's that's the easiest way to do it. Uh, on Linux, you can uh, there's a script that you can get that will uh, help you install it. But it's it's mostly a matter of you know unpacking some files from a jar and putting them in the right place. That's the the key bits for it. Uh, and at the end, you end up with uh, a script CLJ uh, and another script closure. Um, so Clojure is really the primary script, and then CLJ is sort of a terminal-friendly wrapper around it. So it has just some additional terminal facilities around it. Um, and then uh, those basically are uh, a tool for, um, it, there's a, a file called depths.eden, and that file describes the dependencies for your sort of current project, whatever context you're currently in. Um, and then we'll go get those and uh, we use Maven to download them and, and cache them in your Maven repository uh, and then build a class path. And we actually have a bunch of stuff to cache class paths so you don't have to do all that work every time. Uh, and then launch your closure program with the things that you asked for. 
So some of the differences there from other tools are other tools are uh, we sort of took a took a path at some point, you know, six, eight years ago of deciding that um, we needed to at, be able to access Java libraries and Java libraries were packaged into, and stored in Maven repositories. Um, so uh, we sort of built our tooling around uh, describing our libraries as Maven artifacts and downloading them as Maven artifacts and and uh, sort of uh, just relied on Maven to be able to do all that stuff. And unfortunately, with that, the downside of that is that uh, Clojure doesn't care about Maven artifacts. Um, it's a it's a at, at the end of it, the day, it's a Java program, uh, and it cares about the class path. And so we're trying to reclaim a little bit of that flexibility um, and being able to describe dependencies not just as Maven artifacts, but also as uh, uh, Git um, SHAs. So if you've got a Git repo out there that you can access and you know a commit, then you can just use that. Or it was just some, I've just got some closure files sitting around on my disk. I can just use those too. Uh, as long as you get them onto the class path, it doesn't really matter. So um, CLJ has the ability to combine different kinds of dependencies in that way and transitively go through them and find uh, some dependencies. So that's a that's a way that it does more than what most of the other tools do now. Yeah, I think I saw some tweets go by. You could like run run something with a curl and, and things like that. Uh, not with curl, but uh, one thing people have have found that's kind of fun is that um, gists on GitHub oh, gist, are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, gists are actually a Git repository. So you can actually refer to it as a Git dependency uh, directly and just run a program directly out of a gist um, with, with multiple files and all sorts of stuff. So that's kind of fun. So how does that work with um, ClojureScript? Does ClojureScript play into that yet? Yeah, so ClojureScript has a pretty substantially um, adopted this as sort of the basis for um, their own sort of REPL tooling. Uh, so the latest version of ClojureScript really sort of piggybacks on top of all that. So ClojureScript is ultimately a Clojure program, right, that runs on the JVM uh, and then takes ClojureScript code and transpiles it into JavaScript. So um, since it is nothing more than a closure program that happens to need dependencies, you can use CLJ to run it. And so um, you can use CLJ to run a ClojureScript REPL or to run the ClojureScript compiler um, and to do all that kind of stuff. And so they are sort of uh, um, get all the benefits of sort of the tools that are available in CLJ and then have built their own sort of extensions of all that on top of it. So um, are there new features coming to this that you can talk about or, or some, or is this, <laughs> I guess I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, so uh, yes, um, in short, yes. <laughs> so uh, since we released it in December, we added, we've added a bunch of stuff and, or I've added a bunch of stuff mostly uh, in addition to some community contributions. So um, the Git dependencies was added since then. Uh, we've added support for POM generation, uh, a POM reader, so you can use um, projects that have a Maven POM either as local or Git or JAR dependencies. Um, we've added a bunch of stuff around uh, Java option and main option alias support. Um, we've uh, done a lot of work on the Linux installer 
and uh, things sort of coming. Um, I've been working a lot on a Windows installer because that didn't exist and a port of the scripts to PowerShell. Uh, that is almost done. It's a, it's a, it's 80% of the way done. So there's only 80% left, um, which is making it all work exactly right. <laughs> um, but I, I've got I'm up to the point where I can actually uh, use it and do stuff with it. So it's, it's getting there. Um, there is a new feature called AdLib that I wrote a little blog about that uh, Rich and I have been talking about for a long time now, actually. Uh, but I've got a, a version of it implemented for CLJ sitting in a branch. Uh, and because it's on a Git thing, you can go try it out. Uh, there's uh, instructions in the blog about that. But what it is is basically I'm sitting in a REPL and doing stuff, and like all of a sudden I realize I need to go use some other library. So... I can go out and I can just call add lib and actually uh, dynamically add that library to the class path. Uh, and there are things to do this already uh, in other libraries. Pomegranate has it. You can use it through um, boot pods has the ability to do some of this stuff. And, and I think even some of the, uh, some of the stuff is built into like CIDR um, as options there. So it's not particularly novel, but it's nice to be able to do it just from the basic uh, CLJ REPL. Um, I am, uh, um, Bruce Howman, uh, released this thing earlier this year called rebel Readline, which is, uh, basically, a, ter a closure REPL terminal on steroids and has the ability to do all the, uh, do things like auto completion and all sorts of different stuff. And, um, I, I'm really interested in seeing if we can integrate that into CLJ and make it sort of part of the base install. Um, and I haven't had a chance to really dive into that, but I have some ideas about how to, how to make that happen. Very cool. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Um, right now, CLJ is based on a library called Tools Steps Alpha. Um, it is, it, as you noticed, it has Alpha in the name, and I would like to get, I would get like to get out of Alpha <laughs> for that library. <laughs> um, it has settled down, the API has settled down a lot, uh, and there are a handful of people using it. Um, there's a, a Linegan plugin that wraps um, depths, the depths Eden file and allows you to use that for line again. And then there's a, there's a boot plugin that allows, that does the same thing for boot. Basically lets you use, define your dependencies for a boot process in, um, in depths Eden. And both of those are pretty heavy users of, of the tool steps alpha. And then there's a couple of third party libraries um, like Jux library for building Uber jars and those kinds of things. And so I'm, talking to all of those people on a regular basis and and uh, and that's provided feedback into the API of the library and it's settled down a lot and I think it can it should definitely be able to uh, exit alpha uh, relatively soon there's a couple of different things that I'd still like to um, decide on before I do that but I think we're close-ish on that and then uh, Git authentication is an area that has a lot of corner cases right now. Uh, we have support for SSH and for accessing public Git repos, but um, there, are, there are a lot of failure modes for the SSH authorization, and there's no support right now for HTTPS Git repositories with user password authentication. And so mm -hmm. um, those are all uh, painful in different ways. Um, right now we're using JGit, and we might might end up actually switching over to just uh, shelling out to get itself. That might be the fastest way to do that. I'm not sure. 
So. Well, it sounds like there's lots of exciting stuff coming down the pipe. Yep. I'm looking forward to getting some of that out there. Yeah. So we're, we're getting close to um, our time. So I, I wanted to kind of transition into our traditional closing question, which is also one of my favorites because I get to collect uh, advice <laughs> from sure. all, all sorts of different people. So uh, if you if you would, if you could share uh, just a piece of advice um, for me and for all of our listeners. Well, one thing that I, I just happened to see float through my Twitter feed this week was uh, uh, this woman, Alicia Liu, I had a post about um, feedback and giving feedback and helping yourself, giving feedback to yourself <laughs> and just different ways to think about uh, communication and feedback and, and communicating with other people. And uh, there is a ton of, uh, well, I'll give you the link, you can put it in the notes or whatever, but there's a ton of good advice in there. And I, but the one little bit of it that stuck out in my head and I've been sort of rolling over my head all week is don't be nice, be kind. And I think um, the, the point being made is that um, being, being nice is about um, avoiding conflict um, or avoiding making yourself feel uncomfortable. Um, and sometimes that me, so it, it can be sort of just inaction of, you know, not, not wanting to say something, you know, uh, just to be nice and get along. But, um, and she is making the point that being kind is really, um, taking an action to improve something and being kind may actually require saying something that people don't agree with. <laughs> and it might it, it might be giving feedback to someone that is hard to give, but actually improves, you know, your relationship with them in the, in the long run. And I think that's, that is an interesting thing to think about. And so I've been kind of mulling that over and trying to figure out how I can, um, I, one of the things I'm involved with in my non-programming life is uh, Boy Scouts. I have two, two boys and Boy Scouts and, I'm very involved in our current troop and we'll be taking over Scoutmaster soon. And so um, I've been thinking about how can I sort of pull this into uh, advice for scouts in the troop about how they can, how the older scouts can give younger scouts feedback in a way that is not just nice, but kind um, and helps them improve and, and get better. So, yeah, that's Great advice, and I'm going to think about that too because the feedback mm -hmm. at and in a place where you've got good um, constructive feedback in like in the workplace or communities that that just helps everyone get better. Mm -hmm. So that's one paragraph out of this uh, I don't know five or six page post, <laughs> which was all good. So I would encourage you to go read the whole post. Yeah, definitely. We'll stuff. put the link there. So yeah. that'd be awesome. Well, I just wanted to thank you again, and I think we're going to wrap it up here. But thanks, Alex. Um, it's been great having you on the show, and I'm sure we'll have you on the show again to talk about all the wonderful things you're doing. So, Thank you so much. I'm always happy to check in. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Cognicast.
You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We're a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Alex Miller, whom you can find on the internet under his name to Twitter, at Pure Danger, which seems very unlikely to me. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, on Twitter as at Gigasquid, think one billion mosques. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. Today is May 25th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and my phone just went off. Holy cow. <laughs> We're going to do that over again. And I'm going to mute my phone. <laughs> that was super loud. <laughs> it was right, sitting right next to the microphone, too. I'm going to move that away. It sounded like a cat dying. <laughs> it's supposed to be Godzilla. <laughs> I, I can see that now. <laughs> All right. Take two. <laughs>